0: All right, so we're in our fourth week of, of Advent, right? My question to you this morning is, what is Christmas to you? All right? what's Christmas to you? Is it the most wonderful time of the year, right? A time uh, filled with joyful and thankful smiles. You got the stockings hung by the chimney with care. Uh, lots of baked goods, my personal favorite. Maybe some fudge, maybe, uh, maybe some kind of pie, um, you know, cookies, Oh, just all, sorry, I got lost there for a minute. Uh, lots of good food. Uh, just, you know, great time and memories made with the people that you love the most. Is that what Christmas is to you? Is it the most wonderful time of the year? Or is Christmas to you the most dreadful time of the year? Right? The most dreadful time of the year. Uh, one of those kind of Christmases that makes, uh, you know, Cousin Eddie with his RV parked in the driveway and Aunt Bethany's cat food filled uh, Jello mold look like. Delightful, right? That would be a plus. That would be like a good Christmas for us. Um, it, seriously, all joking aside, you know, uh, for some of us, this time of year, Christmas is is a dreadful time. It's a it's a it's a hurtful time. It's a sad time. Um, and, and there's family tensions and family drama and things that kind of get brought back up, old wounds that either feel like or maybe they really are reopened in, in some of those settings. Uh, there's a reminder of the loved ones that we've lost. Uh, who are so dear to us and we remember it all the more and these, these times of year at these holidays where we gather together that they're not with us in, in physical presence anymore. Uh, we miss them so dearly. Uh, for some, Christmas can truly be a reminder of, of what is the most painful in, in your life. Um, is that what Christmas is really all about, right? Is that what it's, is that what it's all about? Is it only laughs and smiles, eggnog and uh, you know joyful things? Or is it only tears and loneliness and eggnog? Um, the true meaning of Christmas is, is not that, right? The true meaning of Christmas is the good news of great joy for all people. Right? That's the meaning of Christmas. That's what it's all about. It's good news of great joy for those who find Christmas to be the most joyful time of the year. And it's good news of great joy for those who find Christmas to be the most dreadful time of the year. Uh, It's it's good news of great joy. right? That will be for all the people. For unto you, unto us, is born in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. That's what we see in our text today. Uh, Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 20. If you turn there in your Bibles, on your apps, it's uh, on page 732 in those great Bibles on the row. Uh, By the way, if you don't have a Bible, that's our gift to you, so just take that with you. Um, Let's stand together and let's hear from God's Word. Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 20. In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus "...and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, "'Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people.'" Let us pray. Father, we thank you so much for this time to gather, to be uh, just in your company uh, and with one another, and just to hear from your word. I pray that you'd open us today to the truth that we see in, in this text, that the, the, the true meaning of Christmas, the good news of great joy, that that would grip our hearts. God, that we would stand and behold that good news and, and be moved by it, be transformed by it, and be filled up by you to, to be sent out to be your blessing to, to others. That's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may have a seat? Right, there's, really, there's really so much in this passage here uh, Luke 2 1 through 20, uh, and so many different directions we could go in uh, this morning. Uh, You know, you have in the opening verses there, kind of the historical setting of of placing Christ as not just this spiritual figure of like this God from somewhere, but like a God who came at a point in history. It's recorded, right? That's what Luke is doing there. He's locking it into a certain point in in time that actually happened in history. Jesus was born, you know, God in the flesh, right? Right? God became man, and you have that happening. You have there at the end, uh, verses 15 to 20, the angels going to see and witnessing and their response, and you have Mary treasuring the beautiful response, just treasuring all that happens in her heart. There's lots of ways we could go today, but we're going to really focus in uh, within this, even though we read all 20 verses, we're going to focus in on verses 8 through 14. And even within verses 8 through 14, we're really going to kind of zoom in and focus in on verses 10 and 11. Okay? For me at least, this week as I was thinking on this passage of Scripture, those those two verses, right, verses ten and eleven are the verses that I just can't escape. Right? I can't I can't leave those alone. Those are the ones that keep grabbing my attention and drawing me in to think on them a little more deeply. And it, here's what what they say, right? The angel says to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people, for unto you is born this day in the city of David a Saviour. Who is Christ the Lord? The whole meaning of Christmas, right? The whole uh, whole meaning of the Bible, of Christianity, of life itself is locked into those two verses, right? The whole of that is is right here in verses 10 and 11. And I hope, in some small way, to kind of help you see that this morning. And I know that's a lofty goal, but uh, it's good to have goals and good to aim high, right? So that's what we're trying to do. Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy. And and that proclamation of the gospel is followed uh, followed with, in verse 14, Glory to God in the highest. Right, the multitude of the heavenly hosts responding to the proclamation of the gospel, the good news of great joy, glory to God in the highest. The angels seem to be telling us, pointing out this truth, that the meaning of Christmas, the meaning of the Bible, the meaning of Christianity, of life itself, it is locked up in this good news of great joy. Right? So the first thing that we see in this proclamation, fear not. For behold, I bring you good news of great joy. The first thing we see in that is that fear comes from not beholding the gospel. Fear comes from not beholding the gospel, the good news of great joy. The angel saying, saying, like, you don't have to be afraid if you really look at what I'm trying to tell you right now. You don't have to be afraid if you listen, you look, and you gaze on the beauty of this good news of great joy. Fear not, for behold... If you are afraid, it means that you are not beholding. If you're afraid, it means you are not beholding, or at least you're not beholding enough. Right? Think about these shepherds, and the angel appears, and and he shares this message too. Uh, uh, Why were they afraid? Why were they afraid? See, when I was a kid, uh, and I remember, I was scared of the dark as a as a child. Right? Terrified of the dark. You know, we go to bed, lights off. I'm terrified. Lights back on, whew, I'm relieved, right? I'm, I feel this freedom come over me like, all right, everything's okay now. I can, I can relax. But so we have these shepherds, though. Does it make sense that they were content in the dark, right? They felt good in the dark, and yet someone turns on the light, and all of a sudden they're terrified. Right? The complete opposite. Does that, does that make any sense? Well, actually, it, it does. It does make sense because of the kind of light that was shown on them. Right? The light that shines is the glory of God. The light that shines on them is the glory of God. And we tend to like think of the shepherds at, at Christmas time with kind of this romanticized view uh, of like these cute little cuddly, uh, you know, good old hillbilly folk just out there watching their sheep, strumming little banjos, you know, singing around the campfire. Just good old country folk, you know, just really good old nice people. But the reality is that uh, most shepherds like during this time in history in this region were thought to be crooks, right? They were, they were considered just hooligans, just downright dangerous people. They were outcasts. They were rebels. They were, they were truly sinners, not unlike you and me. Um, but they were, we would have been like, whoa, let's steer clear of the shepherd crew. We're going the long way around, okay? Uh, it makes perfect sense that they would be afraid because the glory of the Lord, the glory of the Lord shines upon them. And whenever God gets close, right, He, he shows you that you're not God. Whenever God gets close, His glory shines on you. He shows you, you are not God. You don't measure up. You you are far from measuring up. He exposes that in you. The light reminds us that we are not God. And it's a grace for us to be reminded of that. It's a grace for us to be reminded of that. In Genesis 2, right, the opening chapters of Genesis, we see the first man, the first woman, Adam and Eve, and and they're living in the Garden of Eden in the presence of the glory of God. And they are so happy, right, just joy-filled, just basking in the glory of God. And all is good in the world because they were made for glory. They were made for his glory. You and I were made for his glory. Right? But one day, we read in Genesis chapter 3, that right, God comes to the Garden of Eden and the glory of the Lord shines upon Adam and Eve and they were terrified. They were terrified. What happened? Here's why. Here's why they were terrified. Uh, Every other day they'd been fine, but not now. They were afraid. Something had happened that day. They had decided, right? They had decided to become very sophisticated people that day, right? We'll become very enlightened postmodern people, if you will, right? Um, They met with a consultant. There's always a consultant involved, isn't there, right? They met with a consultant who said, you know, you as human beings, you know, to truly be human, you really need to take life into your own hands, Right? You really need to take the authority of like making decisions for yourself. You shouldn't be submitting to someone else. You should decide for you what is right and what is wrong for you. You should take that responsibility. Right? You should be in charge. You should be your own boss. You have to call the shots in your life, says the consultant. Right, And Adam and Eve decide that day that they would become these very enlightened, postmodern type of people. And they said yes, right? Yeah, we shouldn't be submitting to anyone else. Who should be telling us what tree we should eat from, what tree we shouldn't eat from? We will make that decision for ourselves. We will decide what we will do, right? We'll be our own boss. We'll do that. And on that day, they did that. They became their own boss, in a sense, their own kings. And in a very real sense, they became their own gods, right? Calling the shots for their own life. And the only illustration, it's an old illustration that's been used many times in many other preachers' sermons, but that best illustrates what's happening here, is having a job for which you are highly unqualified for. You take a job for which you are highly, grossly unqualified for, and in that job, you start to understand how frightening this really is, what's going on here. Because if you take a job knowing that you are insanely unqualified, right? That you, you have nothing that qualifies you for this position. Immediately, you're constantly anxious. <clears throat> you're constantly looking over your shoulder, right? You're, you're, you're afraid of any kind of criticism, right? You, you want to defend yourself at all costs because you know you're not qualified, right? And that's a threat, it's a threat at exposing your lack of qualification. So you're always looking over your sh- shoulder. And if someone shows up in that department at that job who happens to be qualified for that job that you have that you are not qualified for, well, that's not good. That's not good. Right? That's not good. Right? Someone who possesses the skills and the knowledge for that job. The skills and the knowledge that you don't have. Right? Whenever that person gets close to you, you are terrified. You're terrified. And the reason for that is that the closer the person gets, the more they expose you as an imposter. That the closer that the person who actually has the qualifications gets to you, the more they expose that you are not qualified, that you do not have the skills, you do not have the knowledge for that position. The, The Bible tells us that all of us, Our nature, our desire is like Adam and Eve, to assume the rights over our own lives, to become our own boss, to become our own kings, to become our own gods, right? To reject the truth of God for a lie and say, no, we're taking that into our own hands. We're going to decide what's right and wrong for me, That's what I'm going to do. And we're all part of this rebellion that we see here in Genesis 3, right? That's our natural bent. And the, the Bible tells us because of that, we don't want to submit to anyone else, we, we've become our own gods. We've taken on a job we're highly unqualified for in becoming our own god. We don't have the skills. We don't have the knowledge for it. That's why we're afraid of failure. That's why we're afraid of rejection. That's why we're always afraid of the future. Because we've taken on a job we are not qualified for. Right? If we think on it, on how fragile life is, we know how flawed we are, and we're scared because we don't have the power of God. We don't have the, the, the glory of God. We don't have his wisdom, his goodness, his holiness. We don't have it. And as a result, we always have this certain amount of anxiety about us because we're trying to operate and function in a position we were never meant to be in. We're not qualified for. Though much of the time we pretend that we are. We hide it, we repress it, we kind of bury that down deep and assume, hey, life's going good, right? I mean, the kids are doing well in school, they're behaving, uh, got a steady paycheck, we got a nice home, life's going good. I got this under control, right? I got this under control. I'm doing pretty good in this position of ruling and reigning in my own life. But then sometimes the light comes. Sometimes the light comes and it shines on us and it exposes the truth that we are not qualified. We're not qualified. Right now, there could be things in your life that are exposing the truth that you are not qualified, you are not capable, you are inadequate for running your own life, for being your own God. There could be things that are, that are showing that to you, uh, that, that things are not under your control, that you're not in any kind of control. Right? It, is it not true that the older we get, the more we realize the things that are most important to us are the things that are most out of our control? right? I mean, as a parent of a almost teenager and kids who are getting older, some of you in the room have kids who are even well beyond that, and you've, you've lived this, right? But you start to realize it's like, you know, my spouse's health, it's not under my control, right? Uh, my children, their life, who they are, who they're going to become, the ways that they're going to w- walk in, the, the path that they choose, it's not under my control, right? No doubt, we, we, we make our best effort. And we, we, we seek to influence. We seek to shape. We seek to pour in truth and, and love and, and, and point them in good directions. But in the end, right, we don't know. We don't know. It's beyond our control. We don't know the number of our days. We don't know the number of the, of the days of our loved ones. If we open our eyes and we open them and pay attention, it's easy to see how fragile, how fragile, Little control we have you know, over so, so much. The light exposes our delusion. The light exposes our delusion. And that's what's happened to the shepherds. And it's what happens to us. The light, the glory of God shines and you are afraid because it exposes the lie that you're in charge. You're not in charge. Right? It exposes the lie that you're in control. You're not in control. You're not in control. By God's grace, he makes you afraid and he makes you see your inadequacy. And that's what's meant by the line in, in John Newton's very famous hymn, Amazing Grace. "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved." Now, do you hear that? "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear." It's a grace to be made aware of that, to be made afraid. And grace my fears relieved. Grace also relieves those fears. It's a grace of God. That God's glory makes us afraid and shows us our desperate, desperate need for a real God. For someone who is in control. Unless you see your inadequacy. Unless you see that you're a sinner. Unless you see the desperate condition of your soul. You can't respond to that. Right? You, you, don't, you can't see the lie that you bought into. Right? Unless you see that. You will never ever have your fears relieved. That's why it's a grace. If you don't understand how desperate your condition is. Then the glory of Christmas will never make sense to you. Right? It'll, it'll never make sense to you. You have to be in touch with reality. Right? That's the beginning of the, the statement, right? Fear, fear not. And the second part is, 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 of the statement is behold. Right? Behold the gospel. The angel says, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy. <clears throat> We've already observed that fear comes from not beholding. Right? That was kind of the first point. Therefore, the remedy for our fear is beholding. If fear comes from not beholding, then the remedy is to behold. Right? Grace doesn't just teach us to fear, but grace also relieves our fear. Right? It also relieves our fear. It relieves our fear by beholding. Beholding what? The good news of great joy. The good news of great joy. The good news, the gospel. Right? That's what gospel means. It literally means good news. The gospel. Beholding the gospel of joy. Right? There, there's a famous... A famous true story that maybe I hope can help us kind of understand this whole idea of beholding um, a little bit. But in 1929, right, there were two men who, who had become very good friends. Uh, both were on the faculty uh, of Oxford uh, and they took this long walk together late into the night. It lasted until about 3 a.m. And one of the two men was a believing Christian uh, and one was not. In fact, the other man was an atheist at the time. One man was, was J.R.R. R. Tolkien. You've no doubt heard his name with movie releases recently, right? Uh, the famous writer of, of the books uh, The Lord of the Rings, The Hobbit, as well as many other books. He was a philologist, and he was a believing Christian. Uh, and the other man was C.S. Lewis, who at the time was an atheist. And they were talking about Christianity, right? Tolkien was, was trying to convince uh, C.S. Lewis on this walk and this conversation of the desperate need and the important how important it was for him to believe the truth of the gospel, right? And so Lewis would have said at the time something like this, right? He would say, I I would like to know how in the world the life and death of somebody 2,000 years ago could have any possible relevance for me. That was his kind of natural bent at the time. Maybe you have felt that way, maybe you think that right now, maybe you know someone who does. He would go on to say things like this, I'm a scientific person, I'm an objective person, I believe that all that is, re- all that is really is what you can touch, what you can taste, hear, see, and smell. And when you die, you rot, and that's that. That's what he believed at that moment in time, and no one what we have read from him through the years since then. It's, it's, it's mind-boggling to hear these, these kind of thoughts were, were there. But uh, that conversation that night and Tolkien's approach actually resulted in Lewis becoming a converted Christian. Right? And you might be curious, what, what did he say to him? What, what was his approach? How did that go down? Uh, and we know about it because uh, Tolkien later wrote about it in a poem uh, in which he described this conversation. Lewis talked about this conversation many times uh, he, he went at Lewis like this, right? Lewis, if, you, if you're not familiar with who C.S. Lewis is, he was an artist, a writer, uh, an English literature professor. And Tolkien asked him, what happens to you when you're in the presence of great art, great music, a great story, great theater, and great paintings? What happens when you are in the presence of it? What does it do to you? How does it affect you? That was his kind of line of questioning. And Lewis knew what you know. What everyone knows, right? Uh, that when you're in the presence of truly great art, uh, regardless of what you believe, you, you feel like in that moment there's a meaning, a deeper meaning to life, right? You feel that there's, there's perfect love somewhere. I may not know where it's at, but that it exists somewhere. That there is there's some absolute truth. There's an ultimate truth somewhere. That, that even though you know that that's not true, right? You know it's not true. Great art, great music, great stories and other things. Uh, like looking over, you know, standing at the, the edge of the Grand Canyon. And looking over the Grand Canyon. Or, or as I once had the, 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 the blessing of being able to do, standing and, and looking over Victoria Falls in Zimbabwe. Right? Uh, it just it moves you. Right? And you have these, these feelings that start coming. Like this it just stir something within you. Right? That there's something more. There's something deeper. Some underlying thing there that you can't quite grasp but you just feel it there right something that you're you're out of touch with there's meaning there's love there's truth there's somewhere but you can't quite get your grip on it and he knows that he knew that you know that we all know that right you, you experience that. i hope you experience that when you listen to some music that moves you or you see a painting that you're you're stirred by or you see some great landscape. And so Tolkien says to Lewis, you know when you're in the presence of great art, there's a joy you experience. But the joy is never delivered by the great art. There's, the, the art uh, makes you feel there's ultimate truth, but it's not ultimate truth. Right? It makes you feel there's perfect love, but it's not perfect love. It makes you feel there's meaning. Even as you experience it, you realize this, this feeling is just coming through the art, but actually there's an underlying reality from which we are cut off that we never feel we can quite get to that we so need that we so want and lewis looked at tolkien and he said back to him of course i know that everyone understands that and he continued yes the great music great books the old myths the great legends how they make you feel like uh, there is how they make you feel like there is really meaning and then he looked at tolkien and he says but myths are lies though breathe through silver And Tolkien looked at him and said, no, they're not. And then these two brilliant Englishmen went back and forth with each other for about an hour. Like, yes, they are. No, they're not. Yes, (laughs) Not really. I'm I'm kidding. Um, But, you know, Tolkien actually then began to make two points that Lewis would say uh, he would never forget. He would never forget. The first point, he said, was this. Think of the logic here. How is it possible that you would, unlike the animals, feel that there is an underlying reality... That there is a meaning, that there is truth, that there is love um, <clears throat> that nothing in this world can satisfy if that doesn't exist anywhere. Right? How, how, essentially, he's asking, why would art make you feel this way? Why would there be this underlying reality that you feel like is there if it doesn't exist? Right? Uh, what makes you think you're so wise and brilliant to come up with that idea out of nowhere yourself? Why would you feel that way if it's not there somewhere and then he turned and and said to to lewis do you understand what christmas is about do you understand what christmas is about and and he said to him no what is it and he says what christmas is about is the truth the underlying reality the perfect love the ultimate truth the meaning that art gets you near but never allows you to grab it it's the scent of a flower we've never seen it's the echo of a tune we've never heard all right He's saying to his friend, there is one spot in history where that underlying reality, that, that perfect truth, that perfect love, that, that deeper, true meaning, uh, it, it, it broke into human history. Right? The truth became a fact. Right? The truth became a person. Every other religion says there's no way that God could become man. There's no way God would become man. Every other religion says here's the ideal and here's the real. And there is this concrete, like, fixed wall in between the two. And never shall they meet, right? They're, they are separated. They can never come together. But the, the revolutionary mer- message of Christmas is that the ideal has become the real. Right? The ideal has become the real. Life as it should be has broken into life as it is. Right? Life as it should be has, has come into life as it is. Jesus has broken down that wall. He's broken through it. And Lewis began to kind of think on this and say, you're telling me that the message of Christmas is that truth became fact. God became a historical human being. That if I have Christ, if I believe and trust in Christ, I have the very thing that the great art just arouses and makes me long for. And Tolkien said to him, yes, you have it. You have it in Christ. You hear that? Behold the good news of great joy. Right? Other religions and philosophies say you can, you can sort of aspire toward the ideal. You can aim at it, but you're not going to get there, right? And maybe you can get close, but you're not going to get there. Maybe you can sort of feel it mystically, but it's not tangible. You can, you can, you know, through your morality sort of work your way towards it, but you'll never quite break through. Every other philosophy, every other religion says that. But the Bible declares in the gospel, the good news of great joy, that joy has broken into your life. Joy has broken into your life. For unto you, in the city of David, a Savior is born, who is Christ the Lord. Amen? God's glory exposes our sin. It exposes our desperate condition, our desperate need of rescue. It shows that we are not in control, but the one who is in control has broken through into your life. He's come. Right? Jesus was born in Bethlehem. He's the promised Savior. There's so much wrapped up in the, you know, a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Going back to Genesis 3.15. Where God makes a promise, kind of a a hopeful promise that even though, hey, you've sinned, you've rebelled, you've cut off this relationship and and here is the curse. Let me tell you, there's hope that I've set in motion a plan before I even made you that I will redeem and reconcile and restore this relationship. And and the promise of Jesus is given in Genesis 3.15. And later God makes a covenant with Abraham and says that I will make you into a great nation that will be a blessing to all nations. And Jesus is that promised blessing to all nations. And the, the prophets that we've, we've talked about a few weeks ago, Isaiah and so many other places, they, they tell us of the coming Savior, Jesus Christ, Messiah, right? God in the flesh, truth becoming man. And Jesus was born in Bethlehem. And historical point in time he was a real historical person not some spiritual figure some ideal but but real he was born to live the life you never could right to obey in all the ways that you fail to obey to keep the law in all the ways that we break the law at every point he was born to die to die the death that you deserve for your sins in your place on the cross And he went to Calvary and he paid that debt in full and declared, It is finished. He exposes, he who exposes your inadequacy and your desperate need was born to become your sufficiency and and, and your rescue from sin and death. He came to relieve your fears and heal your deepest wounds. No matter how you're feeling about this Christmas, Jesus is the joy, He's the hope, He's the truth. That you need. Beholding the gospel is where our fears are relieved, it's where our hearts are transformed, it's where we find strength, it's where we find hope, it's where we find joy, even when our circumstances say that's not possible. Right? Do you believe in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord today? Do you believe? Do you believe that in the city of David, in the city of Bethlehem, was born a Savior who is Christ the Lord, Emmanuel, God with us? Right? Joy has dawned. It's dawn in Bethlehem. Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord, was born. He lived, He died, He rose again, He ascended, and He is returning to renew and restore and reign forever. If you're struggling in fear, you're you're not beholding. You hear that? If you're you're wrestling in fears, it means you're not beholding, or at least you're not beholding enough. You're not beholding enough. Would you look at the gospel today? Would you stare at at Jesus Christ? Would you stare at that scene in Bethlehem? Would you stare at his cross, at the empty tomb? Would you remember all that he has accomplished for you and let that grab a hold of your heart this morning? Christian, God is with you, right? God is with you. That's the promise of Christmas. God is with you. Behold and be filled with great joy. No matter what you're going into this week, the coming weeks, the coming days, God is with you. Let that comfort you. Let that move you. Let it bring joy. If you're not sure where you are with Jesus today, I would also ask you to look at the gospel. The gospel is that the one born in Bethlehem is a Savior who is Christ the Lord. He's God and He's man. He's Savior and He's Lord. He's both. If you submit to him and if you believe in him, the the very thing you've gotten a sense of, you've gotten close to when you've looked at great art, when you saw that great landscape, you will now know and you will have in Jesus. Jesus is Savior, so believe in him. He is Lord, so do what he says. Submit to him as Lord. Submit and obey and do his work. Join him in what he's called you to do. Believe and obey. Do what Jesus did. Behold the gospel until, until the fear goes away. Right? Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And we thank you that you did not leave us on our own. You did not leave us with a, a list of rules, uh, with a, a map to try to find you. But that you came for us. Uh, that you sent your Son for us, God with us, God in the flesh, to live and die and rise again, to, to make us right with you through faith in your Son. Holy Spirit, would you stir our hearts to respond as we need to? Yet I pray that you'd help us to, to doubt our doubts and to look at the truth of your gospel, to behold and be moved and to respond in, in, in faith in submission and just yielding all of ourselves to you, that you would, you would build us up, that you would send us out to be instruments of your glory here in this place. It's in Jesus' name that we pray, amen.